Welcome to TSF Life, a podcast ministry of the Shepherd's Fellowship Church in Marion, Ohio. TSF Life is designed to bring you biblical teaching in a relational way that's easy to apply to your life. Let's join Pastor Tom Hypes as we dive into today's teaching. The, we have been again in the life of Jesus now for, it's, it's not quite two years. I think it would have been two years if we went to August. But we've been in the life of Jesus for quite some time. And we're coming into the final subsection of that. Uh, I'm calling the, the journey to Jerusalem. Um, it will cover especially the next three weeks. Uh, and then uh, come to the head on Easter is when we'll start switching over to some of the discipleship things that we have been talking about. Uh, so I really want to look at some nuggets from that last journey, from the time that Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he knew he was going to be arrested, crucified, and rise again to the point that he actually got there. And so if you guys would, this will only work with your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you. Luke 19 is where we're going to uh, head to. Uh, if you have version, you'll, you'll still get the, the, the gist of what I, I'm going to be talking about. But um, Luke 19, we're going to find when you get there, and again, there's Bibles around the room and these baskets underneath the chairs if you guys need one. Uh, but if you look at 28... That's the triumphal entry. This is him coming into Jerusalem. So here in a couple of weeks, we'll be on Palm Sunday. That's what we're going to be looking at. But to get to the beginning of the journey, I have to go back a little bit. So if you just kind of keep a finger there, but go back to 18. Um, now, let's go 17. Ah, I lied again. 16, 15, 14, 13, 12... 11, 10, to 9, verse 51. 9, verse 51. This section of scripture, my Bible, yes, it's pretty beat up anymore. I actually ordered a new one this morning. This section of scripture in Luke covers the final journey to Jerusalem. As best that we know, it took about six months from the best I could, I could find. I couldn't find anything definitive about that time. Usually it wouldn't take that long, but there's a lot of stuff that happened between him starting and him ending um, to the, the point that Luke devotes about 40% of his gospel to it. So the, we really have a lot of information in comparison to the rest of his life to this final journey. And it starts in, again, chapter 9, verse 51. You see the voice says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a very powerful voice. When the time came for him to be at the end, he said, I'm going. He, he set his face forward into it. So I'm going to put up a map. You're probably not going to be able to see it super well, but with Chris's help, we'll put that map up um, of his final journey. And actually online, you might want to just put the map up because it'd be easier to see. Uh, and I'm going to use my Mac Tools MP185 uh, to represent my son. It's actually a magnet on a stick. Chuck and I were talking about this earlier. If he had his, we would have been able to go down. Um, but since I'm not a manly man, but I got this for my son, I'm going to use this as a pointer. Okay. So, I hope there's nothing magnetic I can mess up in the TVs. My, my, Michael's back there like, no! I, I'm going to be at a distance. I can't reach that anyways. I'm still short. So, when we get started, 951, he sets his face resolutely for Jerusalem, up here in Caponium. Then, you, you see that he'll come all the way down 
to Samaria. And this is an interesting break there because that's um, the first time that, that I, I remember, off the top of my head at least, that we see the Samaritans reject him. Right? Because we talked about Jews and the Gentiles and the Samaritans being quote-unquote half-breeds because they're half-Gentile, half-Jewish, or they're not as good as us type stuff. So a lot of uh, Jewish people, when they come down to Jerusalem, would make this path here, but that wasn't Jesus' plan. He sent people ahead of him. They got to Samaria, and they said, hey, Jesus is coming. That's awesome. We'd love to, love to see Jesus. Well, he's actually not coming here. He's just coming through to go to Jerusalem. And they, they said, then we don't want him. And so they rejected him. So that took and brought him over into this area down the Jordan River, avoiding the Samaritan area. Now, the one thing that's cool in this, and it's weird because I, I think there's a, a line that I don't understand fully in this, but one thing I do know for true, that it's true, these guys had a chance to be part of Jesus' story, and they said no. Okay, so if I, if I put that to Friday night, those people had opportunity to be able to be part of this blessing on this last man's night into these different people's nights. And they said yes, and they got to be part of the story. These guys said, said no, and so they went around. And the thing is, is God's will was to get the he, Jesus to hear, and God's will still went out. He, God will, will always went out. It's just whether or not we get to be part of his story. Does that make sense? So that's what the Samaritans lost out on there. And so they go around, we get all kinds of different marks of what they go into, and then we get into those final days, seeing him come through Jericho. Uh, actually, when he's back over here, we, we get Lazarus dying and him coming over this way into Bethany to bring him back to life before he goes to Jerusalem. So it was a heck of a path, and there's a lot of things that we can cover. Um, the thing that's interesting to me in that final journey is what's different about Jesus knowing this is the final journey. Do we see anything different in the way that he speaks, the way that he lives, the things that are going on, knowing that this is the last time each town, that's the last time they're going to see him until after the resurrection. Most of them won't see him until he comes, you know, they get to heaven and he gets back. But, um, so it's, it's an interesting study when we look at it, and we don't have as many weeks as I think I would like in some ways, but in other ways, when you flip through that, I'm an underliner, and this is the only Bible I've been using through this, this study, uh, of, of Jesus, and I've got so much stuff underlined because we have the parables, his parables increase, so we've covered a lot of this section from that aspect. Uh, he gets more, um, he gets more intent on sharing warnings about not following him, of not accepting his, his gift of forgiveness and grace in his life. We get more prophecy about the last days. During this time, we, get, we, we, get, we see Jesus get very, very focused after he says, it's time to go to Jerusalem one last time. And so there's just a couple of things. I, one I've got for you, I want to save for next week. Um, but one I, I, I find interesting, and it's something that you may already be doing, but maybe not have a vocabulary word for, it, but, or you might do it just here and there, and then when you realize the power of it, you might want to do more. And that is uh, that he starts speaking more and more in maxims. Uh, there we go. M-A-X-I-M. -I maxims. What are you laughing at, Ginger? You're the English teacher. Did I? It's because I copy and pasted it. Thank you very much. <laughs> a, a brief pithy. Now, you know I pasted that. That's not my word. A brief pithy expression of some general principle or rule of conduct. Once we see him move into this transition, 
He's still teaching in longer sections uh, and shorter sections, but we see this trend where in each, well, I don't want to say each, in most, if not all, um, of these teachings, there's a sentence or a blurb or something that, if I remember this, everything else will come back to mind. Is basically what it comes down to. Does that make sense? It's uh, in the pastor world of things. There's different teachings and different people out there. And I remember one pastor uh, that was doing some uh, wrote a book on preaching styles and stuff. And for him, he always wanted to have at the end of a sermon, what's the one thing I want you guys to remember? If you remember nothing else, what's the one? Sentence. What's the one thing you can put on a post-it note? What's the one thing you put on an index card, right? Uh, and I don't do that every time. Actually, pretty far from it. But there have been times that you'll hear me say that. If you remember nothing else, remember this one phrase. That's what we see Jesus do more and more of in the teachings. And I want to look at some of those today, uh, how that works, how to uh, identify them, and more importantly, how to have them in your life as a great encouragement. Because I don't know about you, I'm not the best at remembering chapter and verse and paragraphs after paragraphs after paragraphs, but five or six good sentences can change your life. So with that, I won't mess with you this time. We're going to go to Luke chapter 16, and we'll actually stay there for a second. And I want to go through one. And this one, I, I think we've gone through this parable, but uh, from one of the other gospel standpoint, if I remember correctly. Uh, if we didn't, it might be one I signed for you at home. I can't, can't quite remember. Um, but we have the parable of the dishonest manager. And what I want to do is just kind of read the first 13 verses to you. Uh, where it says, Jesus said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to him, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to, uh, to, them, to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, I own a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write down 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the, the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Try reading this at home later yourself. This is a tongue twister. Jesus is messing with every pastor that lives out there. This is kind of a tough one to get your, your tongue around, let alone your, your mind around. This is one of those ones you can do an entire sermon easily on it, an entire study for a week easily on it because there's so much within it and it's mounting back and forth. If you are sitting there reading and go, you know what, I do struggle 
I've given money too much control of my life. Um, you know, I'm going to go back and, back and forth with and stuff. So I'm going, to, I'm going to memorize these 13 verses. And it's going to take me three weeks to get this all done uh, into these, in these 13 verses. I'm going to get 13 index cards and write down one verse on each and just put them across my dash and read them while I'm driving down the street. Not a smart idea, right? <laughs> but you don't have to. If you look at this verse, you still don't have the maxim. What's the maxim of the story? What's the one key phrase that's easy to remember that brings all of it back around? Can't serve God in money. Can't serve God in money. If that's a problem that you struggle with, that's all you got to remember. I can't serve God in money. I'm sitting there doing my bills and I'm getting ready to pay the tithe and now I realize, you know, this week would be a lot, lot smoother if I just skip the tithe. I can't serve God in money. God's not, I, he's my provider, not the money. It's that, it's that little phrase that comes into it. If you, you have somebody that you know, they're doing all the right things, they're being a good steward of money, but they're just in that season where they're struggling financially and God puts on your heart to help them out financially. And I've been saving up for an Xbox. Not me, actually, I'm a PS guy, but anyways, I'm saving for PS. I, well, I guess I can't serve God in money. I guess that PS is going to hang on for another month. Everything within my finances come down to that little sentence that Jesus gives us to hold on to. It's a maxim. It's a maxim. It's something that you can write on your mirror at home. Uh, I've shared this with you guys before, but it's been a while. If you take a dry erase marker and write on a mirror, it can stay on there for three years and it wipes right off. I just want to see every morning. That's a big problem for me, so I'm going to put on my mirror. You cannot serve God money just to get my day started out right. <coughs> They're all over the place in this. <coughs> Go to the next one, if you would, Chris. I think it's uh, 17, Luke 17. Yeah. Here's another maxim for you. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. What Jesus is talking about here, if you look at it, is a, a couple of good paragraphs about the kingdom of God living. He's talking about how people struggle. He's talking about actually the religious leaders, how they struggle with the ways of this world and trying to still deal with popularity, still deal with wealth, still deal with things that are not, not of God, but that the kingdom of God is what he came here to do. This is, again, what we see him boosted up and is talking about, his kingdom of God living. The, and, and I'm telling you, it's a great thing to study. Get in there, Luke 17, but if you don't have time for it and it's something you struggle with, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. You try to control your money, your time, your goals, everything in your life, your workplace, you're going to end up so stressed out and anxious, you're just going to want to put your head through the wall. But if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, if you acknowledge him as leader and forgiver in your life, if you say you're the son of God, I believe you died and rose again for me, and I give you my life and I follow you because I want the life you created for me, then you'll keep it. Then you'll find it. Then everything falls into its proper place. That's a great maxim. Next one. Go down to Luke 12. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is from a parable that we studied together. This is, this is the, the, the rich guy that took and had the incredible um, harvest. You remember this? And he decided he's going to tear down his bones and build new bones, and he can spend years living and drinking and being merry because he has nothing to worry about anymore because he has wealth. And Jesus says, you're an idiot because your life is going to be called on today. Who, get, who gets that stuff? You have no control over the, your stuff. Hmm? Sash hoes? 
I might, that might not be the only slash that's going on, but you have to watch your, need some, mind your business. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness and wife jokes. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Let's go to the next one. That's, well, I think there's a few of them in 12. Uh, 12, 23, for life is more than the, uh, food and the body more than clothing. Great section about how God feeds the birds and how Solomon and all of his riches never looked as beautiful as, as the, the wildfires out in the, the field. That the birds, they, I, I think they work, but they don't, they're out there work. They don't stress out about things, but yeah, he feeds them, right? He clothes the field. What are you so worried about? What are you so worried about? If you're constantly worried about provision, then maybe you haven't realized that your provision comes from God, not from your paycheck. I know people have talked about paychecks and say, well, you know, I worked it, it's my money, that kind of stuff. All of us fall on our knees when we lose our job. That's where the provision comes from. So your life is more than food. Your body is more than clothing. Something is so important to Jesus to say in his final journey to make sure that we knew that. Next one, Luke twelve seven, fear not, you are more value. You have more value than many sparrows. Um, Hannah touched on this a little bit, and I, I think a lot of us know that 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 fact that there's over three hundred sixty-five uh, times that the Bible says fear not, one for every day. How we want to look at that, uh, but the. I think for me, in this maxim, where he's talking about how God takes care of the sparrows, and he's mindful of each and every one. Um, Fear not, in this case scenario, is like, well, just stop being anxious. You're fine. And we all know that's a lot easier said than done, right? So fear not. But the reminder of why I can fear now is because he loves me. I'm more value than many spirits. And look how he takes care of this creation that's around us. I'm his child. That maxim brings the entire, entire message together. Next one, go chapter 18, 17. This is one I love. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Shall not enter it. Um, this is a little bit of a shoulder teaching, a little bit more of an illustration teaching where the kids are trying to come up to Jesus and climb up on his lap and the disciples are like, don't bother him. And he's like, shut up. Uh, and and he, he used them in that moment. And, and again, I shared with you guys not too long ago uh, my favorite chosen episode is, is episode three of the fourth season where Jesus is spending time with uh, five kids uh, and just the, the love and the teaching he does with it. And I, I love at the end when he's getting ready to leave them, that he's talking about his future students. And he, and he says, uh, I, I hope they ask as good as questions as you guys do. Just to have that childlike faith, to be able to, to see things and to strive for things and to, to love things. Uh, we all would bode very, very well to uh, hang out with the kids more, to hang out with the kids more. Um, and then I'll give you one last one because I think I'm, I'm getting the point across. 11.33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in the cellar and under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Um, this, for me, is such a duh statement. Uh, not because... Yeah, well, of course, is because several times when I've read it, I feel like an idiot. You know, when you when you start playing games or, um, between trying to the world and and God, and or you're pulling back on reaching out to others, we'll call it evangelism. Um, when you're in a situation, you feel some peer pressure. Or you feel like you're going to be odd if you you know stand up for Christ or whatnot. 
Um, and then you read this, it's like, I'm such a freaking idiot. I have a lamp. There's a reason I have a lamp. It's for it to shine. It's a great maxim in our evangelism. Um, there's a kid in uh, Emily's show choir, and I'm just, I'm just now kind of putting pieces together like where he fits in the great scheme of things. Like I know his parents, and I know this, and I know this, and this, and this. And uh, I've heard, heard some of the kids kind of talking about him because in show, show choir, before they get on the bus, he almost always says to somebody else on the team, do you know Jesus? And, 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 like, and he's like, I, I think he's somewhat in the semi-popular crowd. He's like, do you know Jesus? And uh, they're like, well, no, no. Do you mind if I sit by you on the bus and we talk? And some kids are like, man, he's just so pushy. Man, he's a really good example. <laughs> I mean, if they say, no, I'd rather not, and he says, tough, I'm going to sit next to you and put duct tape on you, you're going to hear everything I have to say. That's pushy. That's pushy. But... Uh, to be able to shine your light, it, it, we, we don't take on the light of Christ and then hide it. It's just such a simple, simple truth. Um, these are maxims. These are maxims. You might have done it before because of favorite Bible verse or something that, that you've seen that just clicked. But um, I believe the more we lean into maxims, the more it makes Jesus smile because he gave them to us for a reason. Five or six, seven sentences that can make all the difference in your life. A long time ago, <clears throat> um, I've shared this story, but it's been a while. Um, when I was at the church I was at before here, I was an associate pastor over the youth program uh, over in Prospect. And um, we had the situation where you have like four or five young adults who are no longer graduates, and there's really not something there for them in this like way traditional like church type thing. And so they asked me to start leading in a, a young adult uh, Sunday school. And when we kicked it off, we were doing a book study in a weird way. We did a book study. Um, it's a John Maxwell book. And if you would, write this down. I don't know if it's still in print or not, but you can find it used, probably three bucks on Amazon or something. Uh, but it's called Running with the Giants. Uh, I really encourage this book. It's a great book. What, what he did, and we actually saw him speaking about it at a CBA, uh, Christian bookselling event, I think in Indianapolis or California or something about it when it was first coming out. But his concept was, Hebrews tells us that we're running the race to win. Okay, that's point one. Then also tells us that we're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, by all the heroes of our faith in the Old Testament. And he starts going through these different ones. So uh, I called him Perfect John. I I still do it by by accident, so I might as well explain that. Uh, If you've never seen John Maxwell... You've never seen a man look more perfect in your life. His hair is always perfect. His clothes is always perfect. He's got it all together. He's a big leadership guy. So Perfect John. So Perfect John said, but taking these two facts together, he started imagining, okay, if I'm running on a track, let's say a quarter-mile track uh, at a high school, the race, and all these witnesses are up in the bleachers, and they're cheering me on, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. But the premise of the book became, what if one of those heroes of the faith could come down on the track and run one lap, and then somebody else would do the second lap, somebody else would do the third? What would that one person say to me on the lap if they could only say one thing to me to encourage me today? What would that one thing be by looking at their life? And so the way that we did it uh, is we said, okay, next week we're going to talk about Moses. So don't touch your book. Don't look at Moses. But study Moses and come up with what you think Moses would tell you. And then we'd get back together and we'd have five different answers or whatnot. And then we'd look to go see what Perfect John had to say. 
and uh, you dig into those. So it was a pretty good study. It really was. It's a good book. It's an easy read. It's a, it's a, it's a smaller book as well, which I love. Um, <laughs> but the one that always stood out to me was uh, Noah. Because when Noah came down, he came on the lap, and you think about everything that Noah went through and everything that uh, he learned and all of his ups and downs, and he did have some downs if you read the scripture. Uh, his one thing, according to perfect John, what he would say to us is one person can make a difference. And if you think about that, that's extremely profound with Noah. Because at any time, if you believe the scripture, and I believe the scripture, that Noah said, you know what, this whole God thing, it just seems to be so overrated, nobody else is really following him, and I just feel like I'm running in circles, and he doesn't seem to be answering, so whatever. You and I would not be here. That's what the scripture says. The whole reason that we're here is because one man was righteous. One person can make a difference. Um, And so from that premise, I started thinking about it this week, and I said, okay, so if that's his statement, I wonder if there's a maxim that Noah might have held on to. And I went back to Genesis 6 and Genesis 7, and I was, I was reading the, the account of, um, of Noah. Hello? <laughs> uh, whose was that? Who had the ding bell? Nobody wants to admit it? Okay. It was, okay. All right. You might have won just the lotto. I don't know. Uh, but going back through the account and thinking about what it would have been like to be Noah, and I'm not just talking about like when everybody's making fun of him and stuff. I'm talking about being on the ark, being sick and tired of rain, being tired of being cooped up like you're in the pandemic with your family and all these animals, being really tired of that smell that the elephant keeps kicking out, being tired of all the noise and everything else. I have no doubt that Noah's like, maybe I should have just jumped in the water, right? Genesis 7-1, I think this is his maxim, and I truly believe it. Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. I can imagine Noah in his worst case scenarios going, but my God sees me as righteous. That's crazy to me. How does he see me as righteous? I cannot fell him. He has put his faith in me that I am righteous. That's what maxims can do. When Jesus was in the desert, 40 days, 40 nights, and that was not a light fast, y'all. When we talk about Lent, it's, it's pretty simple compared to what Jesus went through. Actually, if you look at it from a physical standpoint, you could not go out in the desert and go without food and water for 40 days without dying. It's impossible outside of miraculous intervention. And I am convinced that there, over and over and over again as Jesus is focusing on the scripture, as he's preparing himself for a huge battle, when, when Satan thought that he was at his weakest, uh, he was ready to go word for word from the scripture. But I have to believe over and over again, right before that, he heard his father speak for the first time saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. If you don't think Jesus held on to that in the desert and through all of his ministry and through the crucifixion, I think we would just be ignorant. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So much said in such a short verse. If you were blessed by today's teaching, we hope you return for our next podcast. Or better yet, stop by the Shepherd's Fellowship any Sunday morning to join us live. You can learn more about the church by calling 740-382-3500. 
or check us out online by going to tsflife.com. That's tsflife.com. You can also support the ministry of TSF Life by donating at our church website or sending support to the Shepherd's Fellowship, 1647 Marion Marysville Road, Marion, Ohio, 43302. Thank you for spending your time with us today, and we look forward to seeing you soon. Be blessed.